Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. If I had a life verse, something around which I would choose to build my life, if I had to pick one, this would probably be it. There's no higher truth than the truth of God. And to behold the beauty of God is one of the greatest privileges that I can imagine. At least this, this psalmist thought so too. One thing he's asked from the Lord and one thing that he'll seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, that he may behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. But how many men can say that they've ever seen God? God, who the Bible describes as dwelling in an unapproachable light. God, who the Bible describes as invisible. John 1.18, no, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. There's only one man I can think of that has ever laid eyes upon God the Father. Not even Moses, when he asked to see God the Father, was able to. What did God say? Now Moses, you know, no man shall see me and live. You shall not see my face. Jesus has. Jesus the God-man, the only Son of God. He knows the Father intimately, and he has explained him to us. So today, I'm going to talk about God the Father. But I'm going to do it understanding that it's hard to do that without talking about Jesus, his son. <laughs> so my first point is this. God the Father is invisible. That doesn't mean that he has a body and that he goes and hides somewhere or that he wears some kind of cloaking device and we just see through him. No, God is spirit. He's invisible, and no man has seen him at any time except the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. So if Jesus is the only man who's ever seen the Father, there's probably one book in the Bible in which he reveals that to us more clearly than any other, and that's the Gospel according to John. If you ever want a clearer picture of God the Son and God the Father. Uh, just go read John. Read it over and over and over. There's so much. It just drips off the page. And that these are things that, that weren't always revealed to people. You know, in the Old Testament, God the Father, you know, had revealed himself as a father in some ways, right? He's the creator of all things. He said he'd be a father to Israel but yet, when you read in John, the Jews and the Pharisees were reluctant to call God Father. When Jesus said that God was his Father, they almost stoned him. It was only when they were really pressed that they said, oh, we only have one Father, God, trying to get a one-up on Jesus in an argument. But Jesus just reveals it in a way that had never been revealed previously. Even when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? 
when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. I don't want to understate the magnitude of that revelation, which is in Jesus Christ. So in the Gospel of John, what am I going to talk about? What, how do I just pick one thing and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about God the Father. I'm sure that will cover it all. Uh, so I dug really deep, and I picked the most obscure passage that I could think of. Maybe you've heard of it, John 3.16. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in it should not perish but have eternal life. Let's just take some time and unpack that today. God so loved the world. So first thing starts with four. You know that old preacherly saying, if you see a for or a therefore, then you got to look back and see what it's there for, right? We need some context. So John is writing this entire gospel so that whoever reads would believe in Jesus. That's what it says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Here, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. He's a, a Jewish leader of the time, a religious leader a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of a, a tribunal or council over the whole city of Jerusalem. So he's a high-ranking, well-knowing, uh, and well-known Jewish leader. And Nicodemus comes to him by now, comes to him by night, because he doesn't want to see, be seen with him. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. So if we continue on from verse 13... I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And now we get, for God so loved the world. So here Jesus is signifying by what kind of death he would die, that he would be lifted up. If the whole bit about the serpent in the wilderness is throwing you off, if you don't know what that's talking about, then go read Numbers 23, you won't regret it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here, so is not necessarily saying that he loved the world so much or that he loved the world to such a great degree, although that's included, but that's not necessarily what it means. If you've got uh, some translations like The Holman Christian Standard Bible, it'll say, for God loved the world in this way. He loved the world like so, that he gave his only son. This is how God loved loved the world. So that brings me to a second point. The Father loves the world. God is a loving Father. The love of God is that of a loving Father. That may seem pretty apparent to you, but again... It wasn't until Jesus that we really got the fullness of that. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, when he was talking about the creation account, he likened the earth to a playroom uh, that a a loving father has prepared for his children, full of all kinds of things that will bring about joy and facilitate creativity. This, in part, is God's intention for the world which he so loves, that it's something that's been prepared for his children that it's full of all kinds of things that bring them joy and thereby bring him glory. He also likened the earth to a great cathedral. It's a giant temple 
it's populated with all kinds of creatures, decorated with all kinds of plants, that every single one of them in their own way cries out voices of praise like a giant choir bringing praises to God who in that sense is the father of all. Everywhere you walk, you don't see a temple because the earth itself is the temple. This is what God loved and this is God's benevolence which he has for all of his creatures. The love of God, I'm sure you've heard this before if you've listened to many sermons, the Greek word there is agape, or the root word is agape, which is a, it, it communicates something that God loves so much that he's not necessarily just be willing to do without it. It's something that God wants the best for, and it's something that God is even willing to give up something to get it. It connotes self-sacrifice to some degree. That's God's agape love. God is love, and we know what real love is because of this. Though we had estranged ourselves from him, though the world was plunged under the curse because of man's sin, because of yours and our sin also, God never stopped loving us. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Herein is the, the, uh, the next point I want to make, which is maybe the most profound, I think. God the Father is an eternal father. So we know that, yes, God's a father to everyone and all creatures in some sense because he's their creator. He's the one who gives them life. In him, we live and move and breathe. Didn't we just sing a song about that? So in that sense, uh, the creatures and we ourselves are children of God. Uh, the Bible also talks about certain heavenly creatures that it calls the sons of God. You might reference Job chapter 1, verse 6. The sons of God gather before God in heaven. Uh, there's also some who the Father has elected to be his children, Israel, whom he's chosen, and we Gentiles... Non-Jews who are grafted in, the Bible says it's a wild olive branch. So in that sense, God is our adoptive father, and we are his adopted sons and daughters. But here in 3.16, and in other places in John, here's something that hits like a brick. That God calls someone his only son, his only begotten son. That this relationship is totally unique to anything that ever been really realized before. And I hope it sinks in for you. God the Father has a son. God the Father is an eternal father. Okay. Uh, I do have a question. I want to see a show of hands. Who, who has their Bible? Who's following along? Anybody? All right. Is anyone reading King James? Is anyone? Sometimes... What about old version of, uh, pretty much any old version, NASB or anything? You might see that your version says, only begotten son. But if you have maybe a newer translation, like the English Standard Version, the 2020 New American Standard Version, that leaves out the word begotten. Isn't that weird? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever noticed it? 
So we're going to take a deep dive for a second, a little bit of a detour, <laughs> because it's going to reveal something about Jesus and therefore reveal something about God. So the word begotten in the Greek is the word monogenes. I don't speak Greek, so fair warning, if I butcher it, you know why. <laughs> the first half of the word monogenes makes sense to us, right? Monos, mono, one, singular, only begotten God, got it. The question is about the second half of that word. What is the root word for the genes part of monogenes? And historically, they believed it to be rooted in the word ganao, which means to beget, to have a son, to have a child. Therefore, only begotten, got it, done. But recent scholarship, and it's pretty well agreed upon at this point, I think, is that the root word is not necessarily ganao, but genos, genos, not talking about necessarily offspring, but a kind or type. So that in this sense, Jesus is the only son of God, the unique son of God, his one and only son in some sense. So which one of those is right? I don't know. That's above my pay grade. I don't know. Uh, but I will say the short answer is modern scholarship points to the latter. It's the only son of God. So if you see that left out of your Bible, it's not some conspiracy theory. It's not, you know, people trying to, oh, I don't want the Bible to say begotten son. It's just, this is maybe the more accurate way to translate that verse. If you want to know more about it, I'll just recommend the book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. So why am I still okay saying only begotten son? Why do I still gladly affirm the creeds of the ancient church that Jesus is begotten, not created of the Father? That he's eternal, but in some way begotten. The answer is because other places in the New Testament are not unclear. For example, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 is quoting Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the author of Hebrews says, to which of the angels did the father ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, but he says it of his one and only son. So yes, Jesus is the begotten of the father. So I've kind of gotten us off in the weeds a little bit. So let's come back, come back to John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Uh, the takeaway I want you to have from all that diatribe is this. As it says in our belief statement on our church website, uh, the one true God has eternally existed and has eternally subsisted in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is eternally the Father. God is not dependent upon his creation for his identity. So in what sense is God the Father an eternal Father, but that he has an eternal Son, one whom he calls his only begotten? Not three gods, let's clear that up, Mormons, not one God who changes between three modes or forms. Not, you know, a glass of water that might be ice or water or water vapor. No, that ain't it, dog. One being, three persons, an eternal father, an eternal son, and an eternal spirit of love between the two. So that's hard to grok. That's hard to grasp onto. And you want an analogy, I'm not going to give you one. That's too bad. Uh, I'm going to let Sergio talk about that in the weeks to come. I need a drink of water. One second.
All right. So what says did the father give his son? Well, the father gave his son that he would minister to the world. Yes. He sent Jesus into the world to go out, heal the sick, cast out demons, to glorify his name on the earth during his lifetime. But also, the father had a purpose here. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, to bring all this together, what way was it loving for God to give his only son? Let's ask that question. In what way was it loving for God to give up his son? And the answer is obvious, but that God loves his son. God loves his son. So I'm going to take a little illustration. I think I have a picture. I'm not a father. I don't have children yet, you know, one day, God willing. But, Farron, I do have cats. <laughs> Maybe we have picture. I don't know. I am a cat dad. That's, that's Winston on the left. That's Betty on the right. Betty's the older one. Uh, you know, I have a distant, maybe fatherly affection for them. I do care for them. You might even say I love them. Um, but I'm not a father. You know, there's something I don't get. I even, I even love them when they bother each other. But I do have an earthly father. I think we have a picture of him too. That's us at the Outer Banks, uh, descaling a flounder. I have no memory of this, by the way. But <laughs> I do remember going to the Outer Banks. And so I have a father, and I've experienced fatherly love. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't understand all of it yet. I don't understand the depths, what love a father has for his son. I'd even say, I don't know the half of it. And I would also venture to say that you fathers in the audience, and none of us here, know the half of the depths of the love that God the Father has for his son. And that God, who gives his son of himself everything, would in turn give him up to be spit on, to be beaten, to be crucified. That's... That's love, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, whom he loves uniquely from all eternity. So the love of God is the love of a perfect father. I don't know what your earthly father figure is like or was like. For some of us, whose father was a good role model and a source of love, uh, we may more easily latch on to this truth about the love of God the Father. And this, I think, is God's design for all fatherhood to communicate some truth about himself that in some degree that's what the love of a father is about, is that we may better know and glorify God. But there are some for whom this has not been the experience, whose fathers were in ways less than desirable, and to think about them brings up anxiety or pain or regret. 
maybe your gut reaction, though no fault of your own, may be to recoil when you hear of God describe himself as a father. To you, I would say that knowing what you do about the depths of deprivation at the lack of a loving father, you who are all by some means fatherless, let the gentle affections of your father in heaven shine all the more brightly against it. Psalm 68, 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. The love of God is the love of a perfect father. Which brings us to the second half of the verse. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Here I want to talk about something. Uh, I usually don't, but here it is in the verse, so I'm going to say it. Uh, this invitation is open to everyone. Whoever believes in the Son of God will have eternal life. Do not think that your case is hopeless, that you've somehow sinned your way out of God's love, that there's no way he could ever forgive or accept you. And don't fall into the pit of thinking you're well off enough that you don't need God's love. Whoever believes in the Son of God will have everlasting life. So that's one truth. Whoever believes, the invitation is open to all. God spreads the table with a banquet and goes out and invites everyone. And whoever will come is welcome to partake. In addition, if you read through the Gospel of John, and I'd encourage you, read and meditate on chapter 6. Chapters 10, chapter 17. For example, John 10, verses 25 through 29. What does this say? The Jews gathered around Jesus and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. It should be abundantly clear. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them that they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In case you're wondering why, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here, Jesus says they do not believe because they are not his sheep. How quickly we are to flip that around, to rationalize away some precious truth that God has revealed in his scripture. How do we tell who are truly sheep, who are the elect of God, whom God has foreknown? Loved? Short answer is it's not our business. Charles Spurgeon says something to the effect of maybe God could have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, and then I'd go around lifting up people's shirts and looking at their backs so that I knew. But he didn't. Because he didn't, 
I'll go on preaching a whoever will believe gospel. And then whoever believes, then I'll know that they're one of God's sheep. So here you have God giving a people as an inheritance to his son. All those whom the father has given the son, it's God's will that he not lose any of them. So yes, there is a sense in which our inheritance, like it says in Ephesians chapter 1, our inheritance is God. God gives us freely of himself. He pours out blessings upon blessings upon blessings, like Kim told us. But also, like Sergio told us a couple of weeks ago, we are God's inheritance. We have been given as a people to Christ, as his inheritance. God is a gift-giving father. My last point that I wanted to make is that God so loved the world, gave his only son, so that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the last point. God the Father is a life-giving Father. John chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 26. 1 John 5, 11. And I know I'm just rattling all these off. You can go back and look it up if you want to. The Father has life in himself and has given the Son life in himself. The Father gives life to those who believe through the life that he's given his Son. Jesus is likened unto the bread of life, which comes down out of heaven. You remember the Exodus story when God sends manna out of heaven to feed his people Israel out in the wilderness? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. That was telling about me. Don't follow me to get the bread or to get the blessings or to fill your stomachs. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will have eternal life. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So let's think about what ways has God given Jesus' life in himself. Well, we know God raised him from the dead, right? God gave Jesus' life at the resurrection and the ascension. Okay, well, there's one example. The father gives life to his son during Jesus' ministry. These quotes I'm reading are during Jesus' ministry. The father gave life to his son at the incarnation. And I'd posit that there's the time, there's no time when we could ever say that the Son does not have life in himself. The Father gives life to the Son eternally. He gives all of himself to the Son. God is life. He's the source of all life. 
and continually from all eternity he's giving life to the Son. The Father not only gives life to his Son, he gives all things to his Son. He gives a people to his Son. He gives them all things. All things means all authority, all judgment on the last day that God the Father has entrusted to his Son. And on that day, we'll either be found in him or we won't. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Without God, separated from God by our sins, which is a state every single one of us is born into, we perish in our sins. That we'll be on the wrong side of Christ Jesus' judgment. Won't you come to him today? Won't you believe and come freely to the table that God has set. And I'd like to close with Psalm 2, verses 7 through 12. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your precious son, for the love that you particularly poured out on your children through him. Thank you, God, for the life that you give us every day. Thank you, God, for the mercies upon mercies that you show us like a patient, loving father. Lord, may we honor your son even as we honor you. Be glorified in the praises of your people. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.